Good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you today. We are about to have attendance clipboards go around, and those attendance clipboards are used for us to try to make sure we uh, don't miss it when uh, people go missing. And so when those come around, if your name is on there, you can just circle your name uh, if you want to make sure that we are seeing that you're here. And uh, if you're not on there and you want to be on there, there is a way to put it on the back. So, yeah. Um, in a moment, I'm going to open the Word of God with you, but first, let's, uh, let's say a quick prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Word and for uh, giving us the chance to come and, and learn from you. We pray that as we study your great sermon today, that we would understand the things that you have to say in it, and that we would know what to do with those things. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Children, it is time for you to go to Sunday school. So if you are a Sunday school age kid and you are ready to go back there, go, go, go. Um, I don't think there was anything else that I was supposed to cover before we do this. So we are in uh, Matthew chapter 5. You can open your Bible or your uh, Bible app on your phone and to Matthew chapter 5. We are in our second week of our series, Seated with Jesus, which is uh, our sermon series on Sermon on the Mount. It covers Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And uh, this series is going to last right up to Easter. And we do have a couple of extra things that you can do if you want to really... Uh, maximize your benefit from this uh, series. Uh, one thing you can do is we have some little guidebooks. I don't have one with me this morning, but they're back there. There's one or two left, I think. Um, little guidebooks that are kind of a fill-in-the-blank book that is also a 12-week study of the Sermon on the Mount. It won't follow exactly along with our uh, sermon series. We did our own outline. They did their own outline, but uh, it'll be a helpful book for you. So um, if you didn't get one of those and we run out before you get it your chance, you can order them on Amazon. They're less than 10 bucks. The other thing that we have is journey groups. So um, we encourage all of you to get involved in a journey group, um, and some of our journey groups are studying the, the sermon. And or, so uh, if you get in one of those groups, then you'll have a chance to get together and discuss your, uh, your thoughts and feelings on the, the sermon topics each week. Um, and there's lots of other groups doing lots of other interesting things. Uh, you can get a journey group catalog back at the back and look in there and find a group that meets at a convenient time for you and that you uh, find interesting. And I really encourage you to get into a journey group. So we're calling this uh, series Seated with Jesus because of the setting of the original sermon in which Jesus uh, went up on the side of a mountain and sat down and taught the people. And this was toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He was about 30 years old when he did this. He'd only recently moved from being a carpenter to being a traveling preacher. Um, and, uh, and this is the first summary that the Bible gives us of what kinds of things Jesus uh, preached and taught about. Um, and so the crowds had started to gather to hear what he had to say, and so he decides this is a good time to give a full-blown thing here. And what we have in our Bibles is, a, is kind of a summary of the sermon. I'm sure it was much longer than the uh, 15 minutes or so it would take to read through this. Um, but, but this was his, uh, 
his, his introduction for these crowds of people who had grown interested in him and his ministry. So, so over the next three months, we are going to be sitting with Jesus and learning from him in this passage. So, so we're going to pick up right off uh, where we were last week with Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse 11, where it says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So some of you are probably thinking that this should have been part of the section that we covered last week, because it starts with, blessed are the, and describes the people, and it sounds just like the Beatitudes that we covered last week. And if you're not thinking that, either you weren't here last week, or you need to pay better attention and and be more engaged, because that's what you should be thinking at this point. Um, But there's a few reasons for including this last blessed statement with what comes after it instead of with the ones that came before. But they're all kind of uh, technical, and, and, uh, and there's grammar and theme stuff and stuff, and it doesn't really impact the meaning that much, so I'm not going to take time to talk about it. So just trust me, this goes with what comes after. Um, because what does really matter here is the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. He's just given his understanding of who in the world are the people who are living an enviable and admirable life. Who are the people for whom life is going really well? And he lists off, this is who it is. These are the people who are uh, makarios, as we talked about last week. And his list is a series of character traits that define the kind of person that we should strive to be in order to be successful in Jesus' eyes. And the list is this. It's the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, looking at that list... You would think that for the most part, people that fit that description ought to be fairly well-liked people, right? They're doing lots of good things. They're they're nice and kind and, and, and all that. And yet the last beatitude from last week and this first one that we just read that we're starting with this week both talk about the idea of persecution, and I, I, we talked about it a little bit last week, but uh, we, we had too much material to cover last week, so I didn't say very much about it. So let's take a moment now and look at this idea that being a good Christian may very well result in being mistreated by non-Christians. So in verse 10, Jesus said, "'Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness.'" And one of the things I talked about last week uh, was that uh, he is not saying, blessed are those who are persecuted because they lack tact in talking about religion, or blessed are those who are arrogant and prideful in the way they talk about religion, or blessed are those who are condemning and judgmental, or blessed are those who are hypocrites. All of those kinds of attitudes will probably make people not like you. And those are all the kinds of things that we are all tempted to behave that way. And those kinds of uh, attitudes and and ideas are are pretty common, unfortunately, among Christians. But that's not the kind of people that Jesus says are blessed. Jesus says that the ones who are really doing well are the ones who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
So why would people not like you because you are righteous? So we're going to look at a passage from 1 Peter that gives us an idea of why people might not, uh, like, um, might not like you because when you're righteous. It's 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read, uh, start with verse 2 and 3. It says here, uh, As a result, they, and by they here, Peter's talking about Christians, people who are recently uh, become Christians, they do not live as the rest of uh, their earthly lives for their human desires, but rather for the will of God. And, and that actually sounds like the definition of righteousness that we talked about last week. Right, a righteous life is a life that is lived according to the will of God in all the different ways. So these people are not living their earthly lives for their evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. So Peter is saying that Christians who have made a break with the sin of their pre-Christian lives will no longer live like the people around them. They will live according to God's will and not according to their own will, which he calls here evil human desires. And especially, they will not be living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Now, I imagine that a lot of the people that Peter wrote this to were thinking the same thing that you or some of you at least are probably thinking now, which, uh, yeah, some of that stuff goes on, but actually my non-Christian neighbors are nice people. And, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure that not all of my non-Christian neighbors are living in debauchery and orgies. And yes, obviously, not all people in the world who are not yet Christians are living quite as sinfully as what Peter is describing here. On the other hand, internet pornography is pretty unpopular. And those people who are not committing the sins described here do have other so more uh, socially acceptable sins. But the point is that whatever the sins were that they practiced in our society and that Christians are tempted to follow along with because of our own human desires, as Christians, we are to refrain from those things. And, and another quick point here, the, the people that Peter is writing to here, these are the Christians that he's writing to, he assumes that in the past they've done all those things. Um, and, and that shows that sinful people can be changed, right? No matter what bad stuff might be in people's past, God can change them. They can start a new life in which they live according to God's will and not according to their own sinful human desires. Whether that's lust and drunkenness or some less dramatic sins isn't really the point. The point is people can change. So you could change and your neighbor who lives like these people being described here could also change. So when people are, uh, oh, here we go. But when you make that change, when you, when you break off from the sins of your past, um, it will not be seen positively by everyone. Right? Because here's where Peter uh, really gets to the point for our passage here. He goes on in, in verse 4. First Peter 4, 4, he says, um, They are surprised that you do not join them 
in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. You see, when people are behaving badly, sometimes they know that what they're doing is wrong, and uh, sometimes they have convinced themselves that it's not wrong. But either way, uh, when you refuse to participate in the things that they're doing, it makes them look bad. And they don't like <laughs> to have, uh, have their sins uh, pointed out like that. Um, so they, uh, they don't see that as a good thing, especially if you did things with them in the past and now you're not. Um, they say that you're being a Puritan. They say that you're being self-righteous. They say that you think you're better than them. Not always. Sometimes uh, people respect your choice to refrain and, and it's good, but much of the time... People don't like it when you make them look bad. In another place, uh, Jesus talks about this same tendency of human nature in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse 19, he says this. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And so, for this reason and for other reasons, sometimes being a good Christian, living a life characterized by all the things that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, results in people not liking us. And so, Jesus adds this last Beatitude that we started with today. Matthew chapter 5 again, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if they don't discover your faults, they'll make stuff up. Um, we do all have real faults uh, that are worthy of criticism, but sometimes your opponents don't know those things, and so they have to make stuff up. But, uh, but don't pretend that you don't actually have uh, those faults, but sometimes they'll, they'll tell lies and they'll make unfair insults. Now, if you find it surprising that people would really behave this way toward good people, just remember what happened to Jesus himself, right? And also there was the, the, the biblical prophets that Jesus mentions here. Many times, people don't want to be reminded of their sin, either from a prophetic message from God or just by seeing a person that they know used to do a bunch of bad stuff who's not doing it now, and it makes them, points out their sin. So again, we have to be careful here because some Christians have used this kind of teaching as a license to behave like jerks, right? Sometimes mistreatment from non-Christians is because Christians are behaving badly and not because we're living like the Beatitudes. Jesus condemned sin, but he did it in a way so that tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners were drawn to him. Another danger that comes from these warnings about persecution and mistreatment is that when we experience some of this, or even if we just hear about it happening to somebody else, a normal human reaction is to seek to avoid prejudice and persecution by not being noticed. Right? We just want to fly under the radar, not make waves, and not draw attention to ourselves, and things will go much smoother. And this really fits the spirit of our culture today. Right? If you are a religious person, that's great. Just keep it to yourself and never talk about it and don't try to let it make you weird. 
Your religious beliefs are personal and private, and you should keep them that way. To talk about your religion or to behave in ways that are significantly different from the people around you, that's improper. Just go with the flow. Keep your religious beliefs to yourself. But here's Jesus' response to that way of thinking. Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not hide. (laughs) Do not keep your faith private. Do not seek to avoid being labeled as a follower of Jesus. Let your light shine. Now let's go back through that passage uh, a little more slowly and carefully and see, see what we can learn here by sitting with Jesus in these, these few verses here. The first metaphor that Jesus uses uh, there is that he says, we, his followers, are salt. Now, uh, here's the thing. I've heard a lot of different explanations and read a lot of different things and heard various sermons explaining what the meaning of that is for salt. Maybe salt is a, it's a purifying agent, or salt is a preservative, or salt adds flavor, or a, a variety of other things. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about this one, but salt may have been so valuable that it was used as currency at times, so it's the great value of salt that's in mind. Um, all of those, and quite a few others too, are given as explanations for what is the metaphorical meaning of salt that Jesus was getting at here by calling us the salt of the earth. And I do not know which one of those meanings Jesus had in mind. Um, and uh, the great variety of explanations given by serious Bible scholars who have really studied this stuff leads me to the conclusion that they don't really know which one it is either. Um, I'm fairly certain that Jesus had a specific a metaphor and a specific meaning in mind when he called his followers salt. And they probably understood what he was talking about, although a lot of times they didn't understand what he was talking about, but I think they probably understood what he meant by salt. But you and I are kind of left to guess. But that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't need to know the exact meaning of the metaphor because the main idea is pretty clear. The main idea is that we are to have a positive impact on the world. And exactly what the salt metaphor means isn't really that important. The idea is we must have a positive and good impact on the world around us. When we live the way that Jesus just described in the Beatitudes, we will have a positive uh, influence on the world. An influence that can be metaphorically described as comparing us to the salt of the earth. But if we fail to be salty, if we fail to live according to the Beatitudes, or if we fly under the radar and hide our faith so that people won't think that we are some kind of religious fanatics, then we will not fulfill the role that God intends for us. He wants us to be the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, if it isn't being salty, 
then it's useless. Jesus' next uh, two metaphors make the same point with different symbols. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do, we, uh, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, light is a more common metaphor than salt, and it's a little easier for us to understand uh, what it means to be the light of the world rather than the salt of the earth. But um, what is light? Well, light makes it possible for people to see. Light brings truth into a dark world. What kind of truth? Well, a lot of different kinds of truth, but, but, but not only the truth of, that, of God's law and of humanity's collective and universal failure to conform to that law. That's true, and it's important that people realize that, and, and it's important that we understand that, uh, that we uh, have a need for salvation, but we need to be the kind of light that shows people that the world can be a better place, that people do not have to behave according to their sinful human desires, but can live a better way, that love can triumph over hate, that forgiveness can triumph over revenge, that compassion can overcome indifference, that people can truly care about one another despite all of our differences, that generosity can defeat greed. These are all truths that the light of the world must reveal to the world, and many other things as well, along with the truth that God has standards for our behavior, and that we need to be saved from the consequences of our sins, and that God offers us a way to be saved and to be forgiven. So we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Do not be unsalty. Do not hide your light. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's through our good deeds that we accomplish the, the things that Jesus has been symbolizing with salt and light. What kind of good deeds? Well, primarily the kind that fit with the characteristics and the, the traits that Jesus described in the Beatitudes. That's what he's talking about there. Um, things like behave humbly. Don't get angry when someone violates your rights. Strive to live in conformity to God's will. Show mercy to others. Seek peace. And many other practical outworkings of the Beatitudes. And of course, there are many, many other places in the Bible as well where we're given instructions about how to live a good life and how to live according to God's will. Generosity toward the poor. Forgiveness of those who've done us wrong. Treating people with fairness, whether they're men or women and regardless of their race. Showing love and compassion. And of course, telling people the good news of the gospel. Now, I, I, I'm going to go to another passage here. This is one that I, I bring this up fairly often in, uh, in my preaching because I really like this passage. And I think it really summarizes um, a good life and a, a godly life really well. This is from the book of Job. Um, Job is uh, described in... Uh, Job chapter 1 as, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, that, that's a great uh, little introduction. Um, blameless and upright, feared God and shunned evil. And then later, Job is describing for his friends what his life was like. That uh, is summarized like that at the beginning. But here's what he says about it. He says, this is Job uh, 29. 
He's starting in verse 12. He says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. That is letting your light shine so that people will praise God. You know, and, and it isn't just about avoiding obvious sins, right? Job did uh, say in another part of the book, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So Job certainly also avoided uh, committing sins, and he, he talks about how he avoided dishonest business dealings. But the thing that really makes an impression is not if you don't swear and you don't tell dirty jokes. The thing that really makes an impression is when you do good. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, let your light shine so that people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, one more thing that we need to explain before, uh, before we finish today. Uh, we started out talking about how when we live our lives as Christians and we follow Jesus' way of thinking uh, and, and live out the Beatitudes, it could result in persecution. But now, just a few verses later, Jesus says that our righteous lives will lead to people glorifying God. Um. So no, Jesus did not forget what he had just said and now contradict himself two verses down the line. These both fit together. The explanation is that if you live a righteous life that is significantly different from the way that you used to live or the way that other people live, um, both of these reactions are going to happen. Some people will react to your good deeds by falsely saying all kinds of evil against you. And some will glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, that's what happened to Jesus himself, right? Um, Even on the last week before he was killed, uh, he had crowds of people literally singing his praises and waving palm branches as he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then just a few days later, he had crowds of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. If we live like Jesus, we can also expect different reactions from different people. People will uh, will probably not uh, be quite as strong in their their approval or disapproval as what Jesus experienced, right? We're probably not going to have people singing our praises and all that kind of, and we're probably not going to have people kill us. But, um, But it doesn't need to be that extreme to be impactful, Right? We can still cause people to praise God. We are called to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and a city on a hill. We are to have a positive impact on the world around us. And we do that by avoiding sin as much as we can, but also, mostly, according to Jesus, by doing good deeds, by being good neighbors by being good employees, 
by being good friends, by being generous to those in need, by practicing forgiveness, and many other good things that the Bible calls us to do. And yes, religious practices like going to church and reading your Bible and being in a journey group, those are all good too. But I've got to tell you, doing those kinds of things, for the most part, are only meant to have an indirect impact on the world around us. Those things are primarily to help us to have a better relationship with God and to to know Him more. But in order to let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, doing religious practices like going to church doesn't have much of an impact. Your unbelieving neighbors are not going to be that impressed that you get up on Sunday morning and drive off somewhere and sit for a while and come back later. It is when we as church members or as, church, uh, uh, or, or as a church together do things like the Wendler Teacher Dinner coming up in a couple of weeks where we provide a meal for all the teachers during their uh, student-teacher conferences or when Thanksgiving dinners that we give to the, to the needy families at Wendler or we volunteer at the Downtown Hope Center serving the homeless. Um, it's when we are like Job. And we're breaking the teeth of the wicked and rescuing their victims from their fangs. That's, uh, you know, when we're supporting the Anchorage Rescue Mission, that's when Jesus, that's what he's talking about here. Those are the kind of good deeds that really impress people. And coming here and, or reading your Bibles or spending time in prayer, those are all great ways to be prepared to do the things that really impact the world. So here's my challenge for you today. Where can you do more to let your light shine in 2024? It's not really New Year's anymore, but it's close enough, right? It's still second week of January. What are you going to do this year that's going to help you to let your light shine more? What's the place that you need to be doing good deeds that might cause some people to criticize you? but will cause others to glorify God. That's your challenge today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have called us to be salt and light in the world. I pray that Clearwater Church would be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden and that people would see us and glorify you. May we do good deeds that are seen and noticed by the world around us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.